I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Woman in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. In this episode, I spoke to Lara Jan, product manager at Microsoft. Lara talked about what DevOps is and security vulnerabilities in this area. Lara also explained how to identify and address security threats within the GitHub ecosystem. This episode is part of a series of shows featuring speakers at Microsoft Build, an annual technical conference by Microsoft. Thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring the show and letting me attend the event. Laura, welcome to the Woman in Tech show. Hi, thank you for having me and I'm super excited to be here. Yes, I'm also really excited to have you on. And the initial motivation for this was because I saw you gave a talk at Build and it was in this field of DevOps and security. And we're going to get to talk about that. But first, I wanted to ask you about your background because you studied computer science. So I'm curious, everyone's path is different to this area. So what was what led you to this field? Honestly, getting into computer science was kind of a stroke of luck on my end. When I was selecting majors, I originally thought I wanted to go into investment banking, funnily enough, because I really enjoyed my AP econ class that I took. So I wanted to study econ, couldn't figure out other career paths from there, and settled on investment banking. I quickly learned out, and a realism struck me as well that investment banking wasn't going to be the right fit for me as I ended up going to my state school, which was kind of not my first option. And my state school also wasn't really known for economics, but they did have a decent engineering program. So I ended up just selecting computer science because I'm not really a strong engineering person in terms of the other more physical engineering capabilities, in terms of actually making things, building things, etc., is less of my cup of tea. So computer science was kind of the only thing remaining on the table when it came to something that suited my interests and also matched the things that I was strong in. Wow, yes, that sounds kind of intense up to me just to be able to jump in on that. And it sounds like in school you didn't have a computer science class, is that correct? I had never programmed before prior to college. Honestly, I thought I hated it. I didn't like it because I have members in my family who are software engineers, funnily enough. I was never interested in any of their work. I didn't join any clubs or any extracurriculars related to programming, computer science, or technology. Really, my tech background was just that I grew up playing video games and using the internet a lot. So that's kind of where my only basis of tech came from. Yes, yes. And it's interesting how the environment can influence uh, decisions, but it's good that you reconsider the opportunity because it is such a broad field and it could be the case that you're not particularly interested in what someone works on in tech, but there's this completely different area that's also technology and computer science and just jumping in on that. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to the focus of your talk on build. I want to begin by talking a little bit about security. I know it's such a broad field and we've covered the field in other episodes, but 
For today, we'll focus on DevOps, which is the area that you're working on. So for those that aren't very familiar with this, what does DevOps consist of at a high level? Yeah, I will also fully admit that I am definitely not a DevOps expert. So there are definitely things that I don't know. So don't quote me on everything in this area. But generally speaking, DevOps or developer operations is a way to manage your software projects. The developer part is going to be your traditional thinking of, hey, I'm a software engineer. I need to make and build things through code. So the development process is kind of your traditional working in an IDE or integrated development environment, writing code, writing tests in your local environment, and then pushing that to a source control management system like Azure DevOps, GitHub, Bitbucket, what have you, etc. Just some way to manage your code that you've written. The operations part is more of what you do after the fact and how you get that software out to the world. So the build and release areas of operations and also monitoring your software after it's been released out to the public or to the world to use and making sure that everything is on track. The other thing that I want to add is that there's also kind of a new developing subfield called DevSecOps, which is still developer and operations, and the sec part is going to be security. And so that's the specific, specific niche that my role falls into these days. And to understand security specifically in the DevOps world, a lot of times it helps to just list a couple of examples of vulnerabilities that we have seen or that you're aware of. Do you have any examples? Yeah, I think the biggest, most large-scale one that most security professionals will probably groan at if they hear is going to be Log4j, which I believe happened around December 2021, which was a vulnerable Java package that was widely used and also easily exploitable to the point where you could probably find an exploit just by typing in into Bing or Google you know, what the actual exploit was. So it was super easy, super common, and also just in a ton of applications. So being able to actually look at the vulnerability and how to execute it was easily accessible for a lot of people. And there are also just a ton of YouTube videos, for example, showing how to exploit it in Minecraft, for example. Another very common one these days is credential leaks. So if a developer accidentally pushes a secret into their source code management platform, if an attacker gets their hands on that credential, depending on what it is, that could be really costly as well because an attacker can infiltrate your company or your code or your software using that leaked token and just really access a lot of different systems that may be mission critical or business critical for your enterprise. And for these examples, what have been some of the changes that developers can do to their DevOps workflow in order to prevent them? So the Log4j incident was a dependency or open source dependency vulnerability. So the Log4j package itself was vulnerable and the immediate resolution was to either use a non-vulnerable version of Log4j, so just upgrading and bumping that package version, which sometimes can be easier or harder than it actually seems because older package versions can have a ton of different chaining dependencies on them, or just your code may rely on a very specific function available only in a very specific version of that component. 
So the ease of upgrading can be very dependent on the component, but generally speaking, dependency upgrades are just that. You just bump a version for that particular dependency. For secret or credential leaks, those are going to be a little bit more costly and difficult when it comes to actually fixing the problem. The cost of a credential leak is widely dependent on what the actual system was. So there is definitely usually some sort of financial aspect. If it's a data leak, there's some reputation lost for the company, etc. But when it comes to the actual mediation process, it's going to be something along the lines of once the credential has already been leaked, you'll need to go in and remove that from your source code and all history of your source code and then go to the actual source provider of that token. So if it's an AWS token, you're gonna wanna go to your AWS portal and actually revoke the credential and also generate a new one in its place. Because if you access AWS, you're going to need to access AWS once again because you probably have something important there. The next and final step after that is to then make sure that you are securing the token properly. So using something like Azure Key Vault, environment variables, et cetera, to make sure that the source code doesn't actually contain any of that original credential anymore. Exactly. And you've basically been talking about these two examples of vulnerabilities, Log4j and the credential leak, and action steps towards preventing that. Related to this, in your talk, you also covered GitHub Advanced Security can you explain what this consists of? Totally. So GitHub Advanced Security, or GAS as its shorthand name is, is a tool or is a developer and security focused tool that brings three different types of tooling to GitHub. That's going to cover Dependabot or Dependency Vulnerability Management, aka a SCA, Software Composition Analysis Tool, which will locate and identify vulnerabilities in your open source components. So for example, caching log4j. It also has a secret prevention tool. So it'll catch any already evoked secrets as well as preventing any further secrets from being pushed to your SCM or GitHub, your source control management system. And then lastly, it also brings a code scanning tool called CodeQL to identify any code vulnerabilities. So things like XSS attacks or a lot of the other web-based code vulnerabilities. And then I'm sure that there are also a ton of other code vulnerabilities that I can't recall at the top of my head. There is also GitHub Advanced Security for Azure DevOps or GASDO as we call it internally, which is going to bring the same great tooling from GAS for GitHub just over to the Azure DevOps platform. So that's what my team is primarily focused on is the GASDO side of things. So what you're saying is there's already this tool that can handle a lot of this common security issues. Does that mean that if we have a repository on GitHub, it's secure by default and these things are running or do we usually need to be aware they exist and enable them? Yeah, that's a great question. So it really depends, I believe, on the type of repositories that you're running. I'm not an expert on gas for GitHub, so there may be some small details that I'm missing, but Dependabot is going to be free and available for any public repositories, and I believe personal private repositories as well. So you have probably received those alerts before about dependencies in your project being outdated and also depend upon wanting to bump package versions for you. That is 
probably the first introduction that you'll have to these kinds of security vulnerabilities or alerts if you've been in the GitHub ecosystem. And I am actually not too sure about secret scanning, code scanning in terms of public repositories, but I do know that if you are in the enterprise space, you will need to purchase gas for your enterprise repositories in order to access these features. For Azure DevOps, these features are, again, primarily enterprise branded. So you will also need to purchase Gazdo for your enterprise in order to access these features on Azure DevOps as well. Got it. And as I was mentioning earlier, you were giving a talk in Build about this. So I'm kind of curious what your experience was at Build. Uh, What did you think of the event? Yeah, honestly, I really enjoyed it. I had kind of low expectations going into Build just because I started off working remote. I never really had a conference experience from the enterprise or full-time employee perspective. I attended a a conference, Grace Hopper, in 2019, actually the the year before I went virtual, and I really, really enjoyed it from the student perspective. So Build was going to be my first time experiencing a conference from the full-time slash employee perspective. I didn't have a lot of expectations just because I didn't know what to expect for most of it. I was also super excited, but also very nervous to be giving a talk. I know it's definitely early on in my career, and I'm very privileged to have the opportunity to do that. But overall, it's kind of bouncing back and forth in terms of how I felt uh, going into the conference and leading up to actually delivering the talk. But overall, I really enjoyed Build because it gave me an opportunity to connect with both customers and also my team because a lot of my team works remote. And there are also just a lot of people that I have never met in person because I started remote in 2021. And I just didn't have the chance to work with 3D coworkers for a really long time. So Build was just a great way to kind of build that community and camaraderie between me and my team, and also just to meet some of the other folks that I tangentially work with, but haven't ever really met face-to-face or had one-on-one time with. Yes, and that's interesting that you bring that. This is one of your first uh, job out of school, right? Yeah. And did you find... Anything in particular, just onboarding remote, that was a little bit challenging or was your experience pretty good in that sense? It was challenging for different ways, I would say. So I originally actually joined a different team. I've been on three-ish teams since I joined two years ago now. So it's definitely been a roller coaster in terms of onboarding, getting up to speed of things and working with different people. In terms of my just very short summarized career journey is I landed on a different team in my first role at Microsoft, which just wasn't quite the right fit. And I didn't have the right level of support and mentorship that I needed in that first role. So I ended up switching teams to a new team led by my current manager. In terms of onboarding there, I would say that I felt a lot more supported because My manager just was able to better support the needs of a new grad and new employee better than my first team. But I think the the biggest struggle that I had, regardless of what team I was on or where I landed, was that you just don't get to see other people and you don't really see what they're working on. If I had to compare, I would say it kind of feels like work FOMO almost of 
I don't know what other people are working on. So I feel like there's the potential to miss out on important conversations or miss out on important understanding just because I don't have that face-to-face time being able to turn around and say, hey, what are you working on today? Or can I get your thoughts on this thing super impromptu? Of course, you can achieve those things through a Teams DM or email thread. But I think there's still something unique about being able to have that real-time collaboration without needing to necessarily schedule or feel like you're bothering someone by sending them a interruption through email or Teams. Exactly. I agree with you on that. There's something about being in person. And for me, it's been a good balance to sometimes be remote and other times be in person because somebody just goes to your desk and they see what you're doing and maybe there's a suggestion there or there's another conversation. So definitely kind of curious what will happen um, in the next few years with this whole remote versus in person. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like I love working remote and I think it is a really great thing that has come out of the horrors of the pandemic. But it definitely comes with its challenges, especially for younger and newer employees. And I feel like I'm just now, after two years of working full-time, kind of getting to that stage where I feel more comfortable and less isolated working remote. So I think it, the experience widely depends on you know, where is your team located, your manager support, your team support, and generally you know, what is the level of community that you can kind of feel around as a newer employee to the company. Or if you've been here for a while, then you know, I feel like it's probably a little bit easier to adjust to that. I want to switch gears for a little bit and talk now about product management, which is the area you work on. And I was really excited when I noticed that you have a YouTube channel where you've actually been covering your experience as a product manager and explaining things and answering questions. So can you talk about how this YouTube channel came to be? What got you to launch this? Yeah, totally. I grew up in the generation where YouTube got really popular, and a lot of people grew up watching YouTube, myself included. I think now if you ask a lot of children their answer of if they had a dream job, that they would want to be a YouTuber or a streamer or a gamer, you know, a professional gamer. And I think there's still a little bit of that in me. And I started my channel in 2021, I believe, after just a lot of years of saying, well, what if I started a YouTube channel? Because I grew up in that generation where people who started their channels five, 10 years ago are now wildly successful in their own pursuits. And it always just seemed really interesting. The second motivation there is I didn't feel like my school gave me a lot of great support when it came to career options, finding a job after graduating, finding internships during school, And a lot of that professional success or professional skills that you needed through school to get by and be successful, I felt I had to do a ton of my own research. And I spent a lot of time doing that to the point where I did find success and I wanted to be able to share that with other people. Also, I was getting questions from friends, peers, etc. of, hey, can you share how you did this or can you share your tips on how you got an internship at Microsoft or what you would do in this scenario, et cetera, et cetera. So I think all two or three of those points combined was just a natural meeting point of, well, it's the pandemic. 
2021, height of online remote education. This is kind of where I still had some more free time too before joining full-time at Microsoft. And I just started. It was really scary at first to put my face and voice and knowledge out there, I suppose. But now I think it's a really great resource, or I hope that it's a really great resource for people who are interested in computer science, getting into tech, breaking into product management, things like that. And although I've been on a little bit of a hiatus just because it's been exhausting trying to keep up with that and full-time work, I hope that I can get back to creating videos in the near future as well. Yes, and uh, one of the ones I saw was you explaining product management and you very nicely summarized three major points and skills that you need, which are communication, prioritization, and design-oriented thinking. So I want to talk a little bit about these three things and in particular related to your experience as a product manager. So for the first one, which is communication, have you come across challenges when you're communicating with different parties and working on a product group? 100%. I think especially now that we're remote, I think it's clear that everyone kind of has their own way of communicating and their own way of also communicating with other people, communicating deadlines, communicating expectations, etc., that it can be kind of hard to tackle at first if you don't know this person. I'm one of those people that can kind of get intimidated talking to people that I don't know, and I always have a creeping feeling of, oh no, what if I'm bothering this person, or what if I'm disturbing them, etc. And so not being able to have FaceTime with someone, especially if it's the first time I'm working with them, is definitely a little intimidating for me. And then I've also had previous experiences where I just absolutely was not on the same page as someone else and they are not on the same page as me. And they're just a complete communication breakdown from the top down too, where expectations and alignment just was not clear from management, leadership, etc., And there was just a complete lack of understanding of why this project was being done and why we were doing it in the first place. So that would be definitely the biggest instance of miscommunication that I've experienced is just individual communication breaking down and then also prioritization from the top down breaking down at the same time. And that definitely does not culminate in a very good experience, especially for a younger employee just getting into their first role. And have there been particular ways in which you've learned how to improve in the area of communication? For example, is there a coworker you observe how they communicate or reading about communication online or books? How how do you try to make sure you're improving in this area? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thinking back, I think the biggest thing for me was just gaining confidence in my role and time in my role. Even now, two years in, there's still a lot of confidence building that I think is ahead of me just through gaining more work experience. I no longer consider myself necessarily a new grad. And so just stripping myself of that title has kind of been like a confidence booster in and of itself where I can say, hey, I'm not brand new to the company I spent some time in my role and learning about this product, and I can actually form opinions and be able to talk about those things with other people. 
So tying that in is gaining confidence was actually a really good way to help me improve my communication skills because I think a lot of the reasons why I may not have spoken up in the past or felt like I was poorly communicating was just due to a lack of knowledge. I didn't feel confident in what I was saying. I didn't feel confident in my opinions. And I just didn't feel like I had enough knowledge to really be the one speaking as an expert in a particular field or on a particular subject. I think another resource that was helpful is definitely just books like you mentioned. I can't recall any specifically off the top of my head, but I know that there are a lot of great communication books, a lot of leadership principles that apply well in when it comes to communicating effectively and clearly. I can't necessarily recommend because I'm still reading this book, but one book I'm reading right now was called Crucial Conversations, which is about how to tackle conversations when the stakes are high. So a lot of work situations turned into those from what I take from the book. And there are also just a lot of personal conflicts that can escalate and become tricky to navigate as well. And I think just reading through some more practical examples from books similar to this and seeing how you can leverage communication skills to defuse situations and land everyone back on the same page, I think is the crucial part of skills and transferable knowledge you can get from these kinds of books. Less so about the specific situations and trying to apply those to everyone's life. And the other skill that you mentioned about product management is prioritization. This comes up all the time in my experience, like working with product managers. So I'm curious, how can someone develop this skill? I'm probably going to sound like a broken record, but again, the the best recommendation I have for this is experience and time. I think product managers in early stages, and I'm still very much an early stage product manager myself, so I don't claim to know everything about this or everything in the world related to prioritization, but early stage PMs, there's a lot less stakes on the table. You're not dealing with overall product decisions, the future of our product, the vision, the overall lifeblood of our product, so to speak. You're dealing usually with smaller features and just being able to grow your skills by making early prioritization decisions through low stakes environments is going to be really helpful. I think another thing that is helpful when it comes to growing prioritization skills is actually talking to customers and really knowing what the customers are looking for. What are customers experiencing as their common pain points? What traps are customers falling into when using your product? What are customers complaining about to friends, to their coworkers, on forums, online? I think that there are a ton of different ways to get signals for your product, depending on what product you work on. Obviously, working on a product like Discord or Twitter is going to be a lot different than working on an enterprise product or a security product like GitHub Advanced Security. But that being said, I think that there are a lot of avenues to utilize to listen to your customers, understand what your customers are saying to help influence and help you make decisions as well on what should come first in the roadmap or what should come first for engineering to go and fix or add new features to. Of course, you'll also just gain more experience going through the career ladder and making harder and tougher prioritization decisions, some of which may work out and some of which won't work out. But again, everything is learning experience, right? So 
just the more experience and time you can give yourself, the better you'll get at these kinds of things. And the third important skill that you list is design-oriented thinking. Can you describe what you mean by this? Yeah, so I think this ties in a lot to the prioritization conversation insofar as your customer wants and needs and desires. So often if you go to a customer and say, hey, do you want a cookie? They'll probably say, yeah, I want a cookie. So if you give a customer the upfront solution of, hey, I'm going to design you this thing, does that sound good? The customer would usually probably say, yeah, that sounds good. But it may not be necessarily tackling the actual underlying problem or pain point that the customer is facing. So when a customer comes to you and complains or not complains, but you know, gently says, hey, I'm experiencing this problem. I think it's really important for the product manager, design team, UX researcher, what have you, to really dig in and understand what is the customer trying to accomplish? What is the sticking point that they're running into? Or what is the pitfall they're running into? And taking the time to go through every potential solution there is out there within reason, of course. And being able to practice the process of taking a customer need or a job to be done, as we usually use in this field of as a customer, as a developer, as a project manager, I want to be able to do X thing because of Y motivation. Following that framework is going to be the best way to actually come up with a solution that fits the customer needs and desires without just designing a solution without actually thinking if it'll fit that customer profile or not. I guess to answer more specifically what design-oriented thinking or what I mean when I refer to design-oriented thinking is always having that thinking cap on but not rushing to solutions, right? So if you're talking to a customer and they're telling you, hey, I'm running into this problem, Don't just offer them a solution. Take the time to think more deeply about what they're running into and why they're running into it. And also consult with your team, with your coworkers, your design team, your developers, whatever, to come up with a solution that's going to be better fit to tackling the actual underlying motivation and problems that they're running into, rather than just slapping a Band-Aid on the first thing that comes to mind for fixing that problem. Yes, yes, definitely understand what you're saying because it could be that what they're running into is part of a bigger effort perhaps right yeah every every problem usually has some sort of related problem or underlying root cause can be causing a ton of micro problems so sometimes it's worth your time and effort to develop something bigger rather than just trying to slap a band-aid on the 10 patches in your lifeboat if your whole lifeboat is going down you know The last question I want to ask you is about your experience as a product manager so far. Has there been a piece of advice that you've gotten that you found useful? I've gotten a lot of advice from a lot of mentors over the past few years. So shout out to all the mentors who got me to where I am. But I think the biggest piece of advice that has stuck with me is probably just to not be afraid of pursuing what you think you want and persisting until you get there. From when I was trying to enter product management, I did a lot of interviews with already existing product managers and trying to learn about their experiences, their past history, how they got to where they currently are in their roles. And I actually heard a lot from a lot of people that, oh, you have to spend a few years as a software developer, or you really have to build an experience as a developer to be able to be a good product manager. And that was really discouraging. 
I didn't like software engineering as a discipline because I just didn't see myself being able to do that as a career. And I also just openly wasn't the best software dev out there. I know that there are a ton of more successful devs out there that can come up with more creative solutions than me, be more intuitive with their code, and also just be able to code faster. So it was really disheartening to hear from a lot of people that I actually had to pursue something that I didn't enjoy to end up or reach my end goal of wanting to be a product manager. However, luckily at that time, I also had a great mentor who supported me in my role or my desire of wanting to join product management right out of school and really just encouraged me to keep at it and just to start applying even if it wasn't going to work out. They helped me out a lot with doing mock interviews, resume reviews, etc. And it was worth the effort in the end, even if I didn't think I was going to get here in the first place. So all that just to say that if you know you want to pursue something, do it. I don't think it's worth the time to say what if or, you know, maybe one day. I think if you have a goal in mind and you know what you need to do to get there, do everything in your power to do it. I know that everyone's situation, of course, is going to look different too, and sometimes it can be hard to commit, but I promise that in most cases, if you have a dream or a goal that you really, really want and you put in the effort over time, you're going to get there and you're going to achieve what you're looking for and it's going to be awesome for you. So that's probably the advice that I would pick. Yeah, that's really great advice and I can definitely relate and having heard this saying of to be a product manager you have to be a dev first luckily i have met people that didn't have that background in software development and it's just completely different role completely different skill set yeah i mean i i totally agree with this anyone can you know try to jump into product management there isn't really a requirement of being a dev first so i'm i'm glad that you decided to find other options and just talk to more people and you had a support system which is very valuable so that's good advice well laura i just want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show um, i know you've been you know busy and then had this talk at build which is amazing so thank you for being on the show yeah thank you so much for having me i had a really great time chatting with you mm-hmm.